Um, so, so when the call first came out um, for public inputs um, from the Toronto um, Police Services Board, uh, Kristen Thomason, who unfortunately um, couldn't be here with us today, uh, reached out to, to Kate and I to see if we wanted to collaborate on the submission. And when the three of us um, started talking about what it is that we wanted to do with this particular submission, I think the commonality between uh, Professor Thomason's work at UBC, the work that I'm doing with LEAF, and then the work that Kate has done with Citizen Lab is that we really all are interested in this idea of human rights and substantive equality. And so we wanted that to be a fairly central focus of a submission that we made um, to, the, to the police board. And, and I'll talk a bit more um, later on in our conversation about you know, what we mean when we're thinking about substantive equality um, and artificial intelligence and some of the issues that, that come up with, uh, with that. Um, but ultimately in our submission, the main things that we're urging is for the police board to take, um, to really center their decision-making on precaution, substantive equality, human rights, privacy protections, transparency and accountability. And in, and in doing so in our submission, we really encourage them to look to equality um, seeking groups, people who are experts in human rights, people who are experts in equality, and especially people who are experts in AI, both in the development of this policy and in the future implementation um, of it, both in deciding when to adopt um, artificial intelligence, if at all, and also how to implement that. And, and a, and a major uh, key piece in that is that we wanted to emphasize that, you know, the use of AI um, in all these different circumstances isn't inevitable. You know, this is always a choice about whether when to use AI or not. And of course, there will be some AI that, that um, police boards will be using. But what we wanted to encourage was, was really this kind of thoughtful and ongoing assessment about whether AI is necessary to be used at all. And then if it is determined to be used, you know, how to use it and what procedures need to be in place to ensure um, that equality and human rights are protected in that process, which I think is something that, that everyone wants um, to happen as we see the future of AI and its use in policing. Um, so, so that's a real kind of basic introduction um, to, the, to the submission and, and how we got together. Um, uh, to write this, but I'll, I'll pass it on uh, to Kate, who really is the expert in the room on this topic. She was one of the main authors on the Citizen Lab report and has been uh, thinking incredibly uh, deeply about this. And um, so I'll, I'll pass it on to you, Kate. Thanks so much for that um, introduction and, and overview of some of the really interesting and thorny issues that are brought to bear and come into focus when looking at this draft policy from the Toronto Police Services Board. Um, in terms of the report that um, Susie spoke about to surveil and predict, um, that is a report that was a joint publication in 2020 of the Citizen Lab, as well as um, the University of Toronto's International Human Rights Program. Um, and it was a report that took on uh, quite a, a few important issues in the larger landscape of algorithmic policing technology. And I'll talk about that in a very high level way, just to situate where within that landscape this uh, draft policy is uh, entering and, and what has predated the draft um, to date. Um, so one of the primary 
outputs that came from the to surveil and predict report uh, was that there was a fact finding component of our research, um, in part because even for myself as a practicing criminal law barrister, I only had a very um, surface level understanding of the extent to which algorithmic policing technologies are being used in Canada. Uh, what we did know as researchers is that those types of technologies were being experimented with and had even been adopted at, at citywide or broader levels in other countries, uh, but we didn't know uh, to what extent uh, that was happening in Canada to date. And so one of the important takeaway findings that we arrived at is that algorithmic policing technologies are here in Canada. Um, in, in order just to uh, detail uh, that finding in, in a slightly more useful way without getting into the, the um, wholesale review and, and summary of the report itself, which I can commend to you. Um, I'll just put on the uh, screen a, a visual that um, helps break down what some of the different types of algorithmic policing technologies are. And on the left-hand side of the screen, you have a category that we've, there is often referred to as predictive policing. And then you can have other types of technologies that are, that rely on algorithmic programming to facilitate a, a range of different types of surveillance activity activities um, and and what's common throughout these technologies that this is that there's an algorithm at work but to what extent it is sophisticated it, it falls on a spectrum um, and the ways in which it uses data and generates inferences also falls on a spectrum and so with on the left hand side with the predictive policing programs uh, we have a couple of different types that we uh, know exist um, in in the world some are location focused and some are person focused. So by that, we're talking about an algorithm that's designed to attempt to draw generalized forecasts about the future. Um, some, some of those programs are designed to try to generate inferences about locations, such as in a city where something is likely to happen. Um, other types of programs might look at a particular individual profile or um, more often actually uh, uh, groups of, of people um, that share common characteristics in society and, and generate guesses or estimates about what's likely to take place in the future of those uh, groups of individuals. Um, and and um, the uptake of algor uh, algorithmic uh, predictive policing is uh, not on the same scale as it is in Canada for algorithmic surveillance. Um, I, I, I mention all of this because the uh, Toronto Police Service um, itself was one of the services that we were conducting research about and at that time um, it was clear that they had um, collaborated with um, a private sector organization, a data analytics company um, called Environics Analytics. Uh, but the uh, extent to which um, that in another program um, from IBM uh, called Cognos Analytics um, was being used by the uh, Toronto Police Service. At the time of our research, we interviewed a, a representative from the service and their response was that they had no plans at that time 
them to implement a predictive policing program in the immediate future and that they hadn't engaged with any technology vendors for that purpose. But um, they did say that they were considering implementing a location focused algorithmic policing program in the future if they have the resources and if there is alignment with federal or provincial governance strategies among other factors. And so um, what, what it appeared to be the case is that there, there would potentially be an expansion of the use of a predictive policing model. Uh, to, to the timing of that, the, the scope of that was not clear at that time. We do know that uh, the Vancouver Police Department has introduced a location-focused predictive policing program. And there's a, another program in Saskatchewan that's a person-focused uh, program. In terms of the, um, and that's, I should say, in development, uh, in terms of the algorithmic surveillance technologies um, on the screen that I had shared, uh, there's examples given of a range of different types that we already know are being used, automated license plate readers, social media surveillance, um, chat room scraping tool, a tool, uh, facial recognition that includes Clearview AI, as well as a database, um, or uh, sorry, a, a, a more, a, a different type of of uh, facial recognition technology um, that's being used by Calgary and Toronto in particular, um, as well as potentially others, um, and, and social network analysis. So um, at, at the time of um, that research, again, it wasn't clear the extent to which Toronto, uh, the Toronto Police Service was continuing to use um, platforms such as a social media surveillance or social network analysis. Um, the, the representative that we spoke to said that they couldn't speak to that because they weren't in the um, department that would be able to answer that question. Um, but um, what, what uh, could can be concluded from that uh, fact finding uh, research that we embarked on is that these technologies are certainly here. Um, it, it's not a, it's not entirely known the extent to which uh, the Toronto Police Service is using them. We do know they're using some forms of technologies. Um, and then there appeared to be an indication that there's an expanded scope potentially when there's a regulatory structure that would pave the way for that, uh, which is where the draft policy appears to potentially be relevant to that conversation. Um, we know that the draft has arrived in a context in which there is that potential interest in expanding the scope. And so for me as a researcher, knowing that um, there are other programs elsewhere around the world that have actually been implemented at an earlier stage um, and have even been abandoned because of some of the risks around these uh, technologies and their experimental nature and some of their human rights risks, they've actually been abandoned, such as in American cities where they have been introduced at earlier stages. So uh, knowing that those are real risks that can have real impacts on the success of these programs and their viability, I think one of the big questions or a very basic question about this draft policy is whether it will be sufficiently attuned to that level of risk such that um, a different path will be seen than some of the cities in the United States where they've introduced predictive policing programs but unsuccessfully. Um, and, and so uh, with that, I, I um, from, from what our report we came to a number of conclusions on the human rights risks. One of the most important um, areas of, of human rights danger that we identified in our research um, is uh, equality rights issues. And I'm gonna ask Susie to take over from there to uh, talk more a bit about that, uh, given it's such a, an area of joint interest between our organizations. 
Right, Kate. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that. I think it's so useful to have these like real concrete examples of, you know, what does algorithmic policing look like? What are these things like license plate readers, you know, social media scraping? These are all um, things that we can kind of sink our, our teeth into. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so for the next um, the next portion, I'm going to I'm going to speak mainly to some of the equality issues that come up and I'll speak to some of the issues that I think we're more familiar with when we're thinking about um, AI and algorithms and equality, which of course is kind of the potential for embedded bias, um, the, uh, the potential for flaws in artificial intelligence um, that lead to discriminatory outcomes. Um, but, but two other pieces that I think are important um, for us to highlight, um, which, which we did in the submission, was also having a conversation around, even if we have perfectly accurate AI, it can still lead to discriminatory outcomes. And I think that's something really important uh, to take into consideration when we're thinking about the uses of AI. You know, it's not how do we fix the AI, but it's whether the AI um, is actually um, being capable of being used in, in non-discriminatory ways. Um, and then the final piece that I'll, I'll speak to is, is a bit about this idea of how um, you get public buy-in to AI. And, and one of the things that we often see um, when um, we were looking for increased police powers or, or new uses of technology is sometimes they'll, they'll hook a bit of an equality lens onto it. And, and we want to push back on that a bit around this idea of co-opting um, equality issues um, in order to promote um, additional uh, police, uh, police powers or, or police technologies that might not necessarily um, benefit um, vulnerable groups particularly or, or more marginalized um, groups more generally. Uh, so of course, anyone who's, who's read anything on AI is, is familiar with the reporting done by, by ProPublica. We know that um, AI can replicate and amplify um, bias. Uh, for, for any of you who are in the room who might not be familiar with that report, there was a, a program called Compass um, that was assessing recidivism. Uh, for sentencing reports in the United States, um, and and ProPublica uh, dug deep into the the statistics of what was coming out of this and found that there was indeed um, racial bias that was uh, categorizing um, certain uh, um, black individuals as higher risk um, than they should have been risked uh, labeled. And then on on the flip side of that, um, some non-racialized um, white individuals were then um, categorized as as less um, high risk um, than they should have been. And, and basically what that showed is that if you put biased data in, um, you can get biased data out. Or even if the, the data isn't biased, if the AI picks up on particular um, aspects of, uh, you know, of what might be more kind of social um, aspects, like if someone lives in a neighborhood, they might start picking up those trends on saying, oh, if you live in this neighborhood, you're much more likely to um, be labeled as high risk. And so then it might just start adopting this type of thing is a factor, and so AI can kind of can kind of amplify um, uh, bias and not and not even just uh, replicate it. And outside of the policing context, we've seen things like artificial um, intelligence. I forget which company it was at. It was either it was one of the Google, Facebook um, companies was was uh, pulling through all of the different applications um, for I believe engineering jobs, um, and then at a certain point they started not selecting women and there was there was no 
uh, indication and the instructions to the AI to not select women. But over time, it had kind of picked up these norms in the job applications that had been successful in the past that were predominantly men and, and started picking up on that and, and producing that. Um, and other examples of AI um, that were identifying the difference between genders um, and identifying pictures of women and pictures of men and, um, in, in one program, it started recognizing that women are more often in kitchens. And so instead of identifying the body in the image, it started identifying the background in the image and saying anyone who's in a kitchen must be a woman. And so you can see these, these kind of interesting ways that if AI isn't monitored and corrected, that it can actually amplify um, bias, which of course in a policing consideration, when we're thinking about the risk of people being arrested and having their liberties put at stake, this is, this is extremely significant. Um, often there's this question around data sets as well. And when we're thinking about the data sets that police forces might be using, they'll often be using um, historic data from policing. And what we know here in Canada um, from research that's been done is when we think about um, the, the records that police have on file on things such as missing and murdered Indigenous women or victims of sexual violence. We know that there has been some issues around gender inequality in both the evidence collection and investigation of those cases. And so if we were to, if the police boards were to rely only on that type of data, only on that data set, even though it might be a complete data set from the police, because there's these other underlying issues of discrimination and equality, in evidence collection and investigation, if that's the main data sets that are being relied on, again, there's risk that this historic bias can then be found in uh, the future determinations of, of what's coming out of the AI. Um, and, then, and then one final point uh, before I, I move on to another topic is, is also the idea of categorizations. So even when we're thinking about how do we label things within the algorithm, you know, are we dividing things in discriminatory ways? So a very clear and easy example to think about is that you might have AI um, that's only given the opportunity to identify whether someone is male or female. And so they'll only be looking within the gender binary. But of course, what we know is that there's many people who um, identify as non-binary or may have some other gender identifier. But if that, if that label doesn't even exist within the AI, then there's a potential for people to be mislabeled or excluded, even from the analysis that the AI is doing. So these are some of the issues that come up directly with equality in AI, and that's that's in general for AI, but but also, of course, appears in um, policing. Um, in the United States, where it is more common to use these facial recognition technologies, we've seen um, at least three cases. Um, where people have been misidentified um, by facial recognition technology, which has led to their actual arrest. Um, and, and these are significant impacts on people's lives. Uh, one case was a New Jersey man named um, Niger Parts. And in that case, someone had um, shoplifted um, um, some candy from a store and then fled in a car that hit a police car. And they used this driver's license um, that was left behind from this person to, to do a facial match and, and misidentified uh, Mr. Parks. And Mr. Parks was arrested. He was in jail for 10 days. Um, he had to pay around $5,000 to defend himself. Um, and during that time, he seriously considered pleading guilty 
because he had had two other um, previous offenses um, and in the jurisdiction that he was in for your third offense, the chances of you going to jail for 10 years or longer, regardless of what the offense is, is, is heightened. Um, and so even though he knew he hadn't committed this crime, at one point he had actually considered pleading guilty because he was so afraid of what, what had happened. But eventually, you know, the, 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 the case was um, found that there was enough evidence for it because he could show that he was in a, a different area when this crime was, was committed. But you can see the high risks that exist when, when flawed AI is being used by, by police. And these are only the early days, and these are the only reported cases that we know of. So the second point that I wanted to, to talk about was this idea of accuracy solving um, the equality issues with uh, AI. So the examples that I gave before, of course, if we had perfect facial recognition, it would always properly identify the right person. And if we had incredibly accurate AI systems, it would never misidentify um, a person in a kitchen as being a woman just because women are normally in kitchens. You know, it would, it would perfectly identify the person or the object or whatever is in there or whatever the AI has been trained to do. But even if we have perfectly accurate AI systems, some of the things we want to question is, you know, what's the outcome of using that AI? You know, so we might require mass surveillance. Um, in order to have this perfect AI system that impacts our privacy rights. Um, we may end up um, surveilling over police communities, which we know here in Canada, um, Indigenous people in particular are, are extraordinarily overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Um, we know that Black people in Canada are often overcarded, you know, and have extra um, interactions with police. And so if you have this perfect AI system, it's then identifying um, every single crime that's out there perfectly, we might end up over-policing these very groups that are already um, are already being over-policed. And, and I think no one wants a perfect system where every time any sort of misdemeanor or any sort of minor crime occurs, that you want um, the justice system involved. You know, there's there's discretion in all of these things, but but accuracy doesn't solve the problem. Um, of inequality, it can still it can still replicate existing discriminatory practices. And then one thing that I I've seen in my research, um, which is an unfortunate thing and and something that I don't think policy can necessarily fix, but is a reality of of the misuse of technology by members of the police force, is one thing that we have seen is that when there are members of uh, of the police force um, who may be um, perpetrators of domestic violence or maybe stalking their ex-partners, um, it's been documented um, that, that multiple police officers um, will use the tools that they have available to them through their profession as a way to find information about their exes. You know, and so when we think about the this misuse of technology already existing, the risk that it then puts to, to other people is also amplified if there's police misuse of artificial intelligence. Um, and then the, the final point that I that I want to bring up is this, this concept of co-opting equality concerns to advocate for uh, police use of, of algorithms and AI. And, and often what we'll see is that people will bring up examples that are very compelling for why we should use AI, that are very sympathetic, um, particularly in, in the circumstances of women and children. And we'll often say, you know, we can use this AI to find missing children. You know, we can use this AI to identify perpetrators of sexual assaults. 
you know, we need this AI to be able to do our jobs really, really well. And I think one of the concerns there is that it puts you in a position to say either you're willing to accept, um, you know, all of the AI or you're not willing to help these really vulnerable people. And I think it's a bit of an unfair argument that is sometimes made and it puts um, people who are in equality seeking groups in a difficult position, particularly when we know that certain forms of um, facial recognition technology may be used um, in ways that actually, you know, perpetuate discrimination within their community and bring in increased policing into their community. And so it puts people in this, in this difficult position. So when we're thinking about why we want to use um, artificial intelligence in policing, I think the messaging around that really needs to kind of avoid co-opting equality issues as a way to legitimize AI. Um, because the, 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 final, the final risk uh, before I pass things back on to Kate too, is that if we do that and we say, okay, so for missing kids, we need it because we always need to find missing children. And it's so important that we can use this technology to identify children in these images and, and go find them. Um, but then that gets approved. And if, and if that gets approved, um, then there's the potential for scope creep. So saying like, okay, well, if we're already using it here, can we just use it a little bit over here and then a little bit over there? And then there's the potential for it to kind of spread um, and be used in, in other areas where maybe it may not make as much sense. And so those are just some of the equality issues that we thought were really important um, for the police board to take into consideration when they're thinking about, you know, how to use AI, how to approve it, and how to do um, assessments as they as they um, decide whether to use and, and to continue to use um, algorithms in AI. But Kate, I'll, I'll pass it back to you to speak a bit more um, uh, precisely about like some of the actual recommendations we had and, and some of the accountability um, issues that we had brought up in the submission. Mm -hmm. um, thanks. So what... What I would say um, just before getting to that topic is that uh, just some general comments about the um, draft policy and, and how it works. So um, we have um, a, a first really important general feature of the draft policy that I would start with because it's important and it, it it's quite separate from some of the other issues, which is that the draft policy itself apply, does not apply to the existing AI technologies that are being used uh, by the Toronto Police Service. And um, one of the um, important recommendations that we've made, particularly given um, the, the uh, what it has been learned about what is already being used by the Toronto Police Service, including notably uh, facial recognition technology and some of the other platforms where we know less about how those platforms are being used. It's so important that we have, if we're gonna have a, a, an important policy document that um, puts meaningful guardrails on risky technologies, they should apply uniformly to all of those technologies, including the ones that have predated um, the draft and when it may come into force. Um, the other important overarching uh, feature of this draft policy that I think is important to understand, and, and I don't actually have access to the chat, but if, if, you're, if you haven't found the uh, copy of the draft um, policy yet, it's published on the Toronto Police Services uh, Board website, and um, you can um, access the uh, download of the draft as well as sort of a basic primer on, on what their consultation process has been so far. 
Um, and uh, if you Google that, like the TPSB and AI, you should get that pretty quickly. But um, I'll just explain one of its um, uh, architectural characteristics, which is that it creates a number of categories um, risk of risk um, for AI technologies, and it sets out a kind of cascading um, array of uh, rules that would apply depending on whether the proposed AI technology would fall within a high risk category or a minimal risk category. Um, and that's because similar to what I was talking about, the sort of spectrum of technologies out there, some, out, some technologies are truly non-risky. They're sort of the basic um, word processing uh, tools that we all come to know and rely on heavily. And they don't have any meaningful nexus to potential human rights impacts. Um, so this creation of um, sort of a categorization um, scheme of risk is not um, a first within this draft. Um, there's other models that do exist out there that are applicable to AI policy that um, also have a risk categorization structure. So um, one example in, in Canada is that all federal um, government departments who use um, AI programs have to apply, uh, comply with a directive that's applicable to all uses of AI at the federal level. And there's a number of risk categories with accompanying um, rules depending on that increase in severity depending on the level of risk at stake. Um, similarly, there is a draft um, policy that the European Union um, uh, Parliament has uh, put forward earlier in 2021, right, again, where you have a categorization structure with an accompanying set of rules that apply to each of the categories. And I think one of the important things to understand about that structure is that it can be um, very promising and that what it can do is it can help move away from essentially a game of whack-a-mole where you um, essentially wind up retroactively having a, a sort of endless series of new technologies that come into the scene and that you um, deal with them in hindsight after lessons have been learned after they've been used for a number of categories uh, sorry a number of years um, and and they're being challenged for the first time in court um, by individuals who've been affected by them um, years after they've been introduced at a at a, a broad level and so um, one of the problems in um, charter um, charter and human rights um, practice in Canada that we've seen in the justice system is often that you have sort of a piecemeal recognition of human rights rules that apply to very specific types of uh, technologies. And then when it comes to new technologies that are modified in some uh, technological way, but are similar in principle to the human rights risks that are at stake when these rules are imposed by the courts retroactively, um, that they're in practice seems to be not sufficient linkage between the lessons that have been learned when, with respect to other technologies and applying them more proactively to the next technology that comes on to the scene. And that, that is a, is a, a, a 
completely um, suboptimal way to go about the regulation of technologies used by uh, police services because there will always be new modifications. We need a set of rules that will work ahead of time as opposed to retroactively. And so by creating risk categories, it can um, result in the proactive identification of patterns such that you could foreseeably have a set of rules that provides guidance ahead of time and and some of those human rights risks are prevented um, what what we've recommended um, building on that risk categorization structure though is that um, we that that um, structure be improved upon in a couple of ways that we've identified in the submission um, firstly we we recommended that there be a prerequisite requirement that all AI systems meet minimum prerequisites of reliability necessity and proportionality and so uh, by by setting a, a common and principled uh, goalpost it, it makes it very clear what what each technology um, should be measured against and sort of the principled um, prerequisites that, um, that, that human rights and AI researchers have identified as being a common theme to prevent against human rights risks. Um, and, and we've um, also said that in, in creating the um, different types of risk categories, um, we recommend that those categories be um, made broader and, and um, that they create uh, the proactive identification of certain uh, types of risk um, because right now, as the draft policy is presently worded, um, while you do have different types of categories, they're largely illustrated by giving examples. Um, so in that regard, it, it's, it's sort of a, somewhere in between the, the whack-a-mole model, which I've talked about as being suboptimal, and the idea of creating um, a, a recognized set of risks that are can be common and analogizable between technologies without focusing too much on their nitty gritty specification. So rather than looking only at hypothetical types of technologies that would fall into the risk categories, we've uh, drawn on some of the other models such as in the EU, which uses um, factors such as um, the potential for that technology to impact upon a human rights protected interest. Um, so the more in, the more proximate the technology will be to human rights protected interests like equality, like privacy, like liberty, um, the, the risk level of that technology must go up inherently. Um, similarly, one of the important factors that um, is included in the EU model, which I think uh, that we, we've submitted should be incorporated here in, in the Toronto draft policy is that um, recognizing where there's a potential for a power imbalance to exist between the police service and the, the individuals and communities who are likely to be affected by the technology. Um, if there, the, the, the greater extent of that power imbalance, it should be um, identified as a risk factor. Um, similarly, if individuals and communities are unable to opt out of being assessed by that AI, it includes that, that again increases an access to justice issue. Um, and, and so that is a sort of one of the areas of reform that we recommended be adopted so that that risk categorization structure has a greater potential to be a meaningful uh, guard against 
human rights dangers before they happen. Um, one of the, uh, a, a related set of submissions, and, and certainly I think there's about uh, over 30 specific recommendations that are present in Leaf, uh, Leafs and Labs joint submission to um, the boards, um, to the, to the um, drafters of this policy. Um, I won't go through all of them in detail, but I'll continue to talk about some of the uh, groupings of these recommendations. Um, one of the um, major risk factors that uh, we've seen in, in, in real life examples where these technologies have been used abroad um, is that a lack of training and resources um, within police services is a is a inherent risk factor. Um, this is in part because AI itself is a very complex and interdisciplinary realm. Um, and um, human rights as well is. And if the um, humans that are using the technology do not have the uh, training resources and expertise to be able to identify and, and prevent those risks, then that uh, gapage between the complexity of the uh, regulatory sphere and the individuals who are operating within it will in inherently be a, a major source of risk. And so another set of recommendations that we've included in um, our submission is that uh, we've recommended that the draft policy ensure that expertise in independent vetting, uh, risk analysis, and human rights impact analysis be uh, brought right into the risk and risk assessment stage of each technology that may be put forward in the future. And so there is a component of the draft policy that does recommend that there be consultation with experts, but um, it's at more at the level of creating a, the set of procedures that the chief of police will follow when assessing these technologies. And we've recommended that that actually be incorporated directly into the uh, technology specific assessments that this draft policy contemplates um, because uh, of the inherent complexity and interdisciplinarity of these um, right this range and world of technology that is out there um, and so um, in, in terms of the types of expertise, um, that would include expertise in data processing, computer systems, AI, equality, community impacts and experiences. Um, all, all of those is, is, are part of that range of intersectional perspectives and interdisciplinary perspectives that would enable more fulsome assessments of the potential implications of the technologies that may be used or considered. Um, and, and so, um, uh, requiring that be specifically adopted is in recognition that that capacity and training and expertise is simply not part of the the institution uh, institutional uh, analysis that would occur within the service. Um, a very uh, similar set of uh, recommendations that we've also included zeros in on the uh, oversight um, and and maintenance uh, structures that 
would foreseeably be put in place or that the draft contemplates would be put in place if technologies are going to be adopted. Um, and, and so it, the present draft of the policy would require that high and uh, medium risk technologies be um, reviewed by the chief of police every five years um, for um, analysis of, of whether or not the technology should still be used. Um, but even within that five-year incremental review process, the draft policy only requires that the indicators that would be tracked through that review process only be tracked for 12 months after a technology is deployed. And so you have this gap um, inherently within the draft between uh, what type of information is being gathered for a time limit of 12 months and, and then a review process doesn't happen until another four years go by. Um, and so we've recommended that the, the, the scheme uh, be reformed in a number of ways regarding maintenance, um, oversight and auditing. Um, firstly, we, we've urged the um, Toronto Police Services Board to recognize that all high and medium risk AI technologies would need to be monitored ongoingly and indefinitely. Um, and and it, I, I think that the, the simplest way to explain this sub submission is that it, it, you have to think of it as a cost of doing business. And, and going back to that topic of um, resource limitations within the services that um, do appear interested or are using um, these technologies in Canada, um, we've urged uh, recognition that if AI technologies are going to be used, they must uh, that must happen with a concurrent acceptance of full responsibility to properly maintain those systems from a human rights perspective. And so um, we, we've urged for adoption of um, expert consultation in how often that particular AI system will need to be reviewed, um, how it needs to be monitored and tracked in order to prevent error rates and bias from increasing over time uh, is a form of drift, for example. Um, and it's very likely that that expert consultation would result in a recommendation that um, more frequent and robust assessments that would be required than the presently drafted five-year incremental period. Um, if you kind of think about our uh, car ownership as a poor example, it would be quite uh, difficult to imagine the idea of thinking that you could only review and, and maintain your car once every five years and AI systems are even more complicated. Um, uh, others, uh, some of the other types of examples of, of where we've spotted the need for added rigor into the oversight and accountability structures. Um, we've urged for adoption of um, statistical tracking and formal documentation requirements um, so that when these review and, and maintenance and, and audit systems happen, you actually have data and documentation to review. Um, it's a very basic, um, it's a, ba a basic proposition, but if it's not made a formal requirement, you can see uh, meaningful gaps. Um, to return to the example for, of the Vancouver Police Department's uh, predictive policing program, um, what, one of the um, 
stated positions of the service is that there is no indication of bias with respect to the use of that program. However, it's only much more recently been the case that the Vancouver Police Department has been required to um, document and maintain data with respect to the use of uh, carding practices. And so um, it really, it's more correct to think of it as an unknown about the extent to which that neighborhood focused predictive policing program has caused um, increased police scrutiny in the and bias in the communities that have come under um, increased scrutiny through algorithmic predictions and that's simply a lack of data about that potential for bias. Um, we've recommended regular and independent auditing um, through through independent auditors um, is another form of it really important and, and recognized within other um, areas and industries that have adopted AI as being an important uh, check on, on the use of these systems, uh, as well as public um, annual reports from the board about um, the, for example, unintended consequences that may have started to crop up as these new technologies have been experimented with or used. Um, and, and I think it's important after kind of reviewing some of those accountability and, and oversight focused recommendations that um, the, the conversation about recommendations started with a rec the recommendation about uh, mandatory prerequisites about reliability, necessity and proportionality. Um, and, and from the research that we've done um, through the to, to surveil and predict uh, report, it has been um, uh, identified to be the case that there are potentially many types of algorithmic policing technologies that are simply too uh, dangerous as far as what we've seen in practice and what um, uh, what we know about human rights law. Uh, it's very difficult to understand uh, and likely impossible for certain types of uses of technology to be used in a way that complies with human rights law. So there are really um, important questions that need to be answered before you even get out of the gate. Um, with certain technologies, but um, those re accountability rec uh, focused recommendations that I just reviewed are all made on the assumption that some technologies make it past what need to be really um, preemptive and rigorous uh, threshold screening for prerequisites about proportionality, reliability, and necessity. Um, some of the other um, recommendations in the submission, which again, I won't go to all of them because there's just not enough time for today. Um, there's a, a number of recommendations that hone in on uh, what we identify to be a lack of clarity and, and lack of uh, sufficient protection against uh, mass surveillance activities. Uh, for example, pinpointing the need to recognize that both covert and overt forms of uh, mass surveillance are extreme uh, risk. Um, we, we also have um, urged limiting language around mass collection of data um, in and of itself as opposed to surveillance and monitoring per se. Um, and, and so it really in, um, enhancing the clarity of the language that would put meaningful uh, checks on 
the potential that technology has to facilitate mass data collection, surveillance and monitoring, which uh, would be inherently disproportionate if, if used in the way that some uh, private sectors in this space, space are seeking to advertise and sell to police services. Um, another one of the um, takeaway recommendations or sets of recommendations is uh, a couple of, of um, areas to focus on the risks that are engendered where a police service essentially contracts with a private enterprise who's seeking to uh, profit off the use of policing technology by getting into a contract for service with a, a public institution like a police service. Um, so there's recommendations focused on that. But um, I, what, I, what I would say um, is a couple of points to, to conclude our the more formal part of our presentation, which is um, before we get to questions today, but um, just talking about the, the broader landscape in which the draft policy exists within. Um, since the Surveil and Predict report was published in 2020, um, we've seen a number of initiatives across uh, Canada regarding the regulatory structure that would um, exist around potential uses uh, that we may not know about or that we already know about of, of algorithmic policing technology in Canada. And so um, what, one of the thorny issues that we re wrestled with as researchers in producing that report is thinking about what is the ideal form of, of regulation when it comes to um, risky technologies such as those used by police services. And it, it one of the particular challenges in Canada within its uh, system of government uh, is that uh, police services exist in a number of different formats, both at the city level, um, national level, uh, provincial or regional level, and the regulatory landscape is inordinately complex and complicated. And if uh, there's there's no one um, uh, government body that is a regulator to all, uh, and compounding that complexity is the topic of AI and human rights itself, which is I've talked about earlier is a very um, interdisciplinary and complex space, um, an important one given the human rights uh, risks that are are quite um, uh, imminent or on the horizon, and and so. Um, but what we do see, nevertheless, despite it being a very diffuse uh, collective action problem between um, government bodies at a, a number of levels, there are initiatives that we're starting to see. Uh, for, for example, perhaps in talking about Toronto, I'll, I'll focus on um, the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario. They've uh, published a, um, a policy document which has identified its strategic priorities over the next four years. Um, next generation law enforcement uh, technology is one of the um, priorities that it has identified as being a strategic priority for the commissioner in Ontario. Um, and, and that um, goes to show that this draft policy, while at, at a board level, it's a very important mechanism for regulatory oversight. And in fact, in our, in our uh, country's tradition, uh, boards have become one of the most 
important venues for oversight of police services because of a, a trend that has persisted throughout uh, law reform to give uh, independence towards police services. Um, boards are a very important um, mechanism for oversight of services as, as it has developed in Canada. Um, but nevertheless, um, to the extent that other um, initiatives by privacy commissioners, human rights commissioners, provincial governments, federal governments introduce roles and regulations, um, obviously each service would have to comply with the highest bar that it is set. Um, there's privacy legislation reform going on in Canada um, in a number of uh, different regions um, and, and the potential that some of the very vague and discretionary provisions that come to personal information used by law enforcement may be amended um, and and we've seen as well the at the um, at a collaborative scale uh, privacy commissioners across the country considering the issue of what guidelines are needed on the use of facial recognition um, filling in a legislative void in this area area. Um, and, and so what 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 is important is, again is stepping back um, in looking at the role of this draft it within this larger regulatory or potential regulatory landscape is that um, regulation has a role but it, it goes um, as as a more uh, proactive mechanism of enforcing the charter rights that and the human international human rights that apply uh, regardless of what those regulations look like uh, and, and the whack-a-mole game that does exist in the justice system is suboptimal but at the same time it's important to recognize that these rights already exist now and they restrain government action now and so when we think about what regulations are needed um, it, it's more about making those rights more meaningful in reality and moving from th theory to practice um, and and what i would also urge um, researchers and individuals who are listening to this uh, conversation and considering this policy to think about um, the humanity of this um, policy issue. Um, and, and as someone that has practiced in the justice system for uh, several years now, what I, I have identified as a need is a culture of humility within um, institutions that seek to embark on uh, experimentation with this technology. Um, because it can unfortunately be the case where you can be left in a situation where at an individual level, um, people who work within institutions that are involved in the enforcement or compliance of human rights law, um, whether it's within police services or uh, courts or uh, go other government agencies, at an individual level, I, I know from experience and in conversations that we individually all struggle um, to understand and grapple with the complexity of this issue. It's an inherently interdisciplinary issue. So even myself, I will struggle as a researcher to opine on issues that are very deeply involved in computer science because I don't have that background. And so um, individually, we can all feel quite insecure about how we participate in the larger process that may be underway that we're considering expanding um, possibly in Canada, um, despite the risks on the horizon. But in, in when it comes to the institutional reality and courts, if we were to address these issues retroactively in court, individuals who are left with the burden of accessing human rights protections through litigation and court process face a, a 
a number of hurdles that if you haven't experienced the justice system, you wouldn't necessarily anticipate to be quite so difficult. And, and so when I talk about that as a, a risk factor, the power imbalance between communities who are affected by technologies and the institutions that would uh, seek to use them, um, I, I really emphasize that that is a factor that shouldn't be underestimated because um, we think and, and have a lot to be proud of in Canada about how we have a system in our justice system that had, um, is, it revolves around the right to a fair trial, um, but it, it, it still struggles to make um, principles meaningful and accessible on the ground. And, and it's certainly something that the defense bar, for example, struggles with till to this day to um, be able to meaningfully access the rights that are in existence, but you still need to do the work to, to make them meaningful for individuals and communities. So um, I, I'll leave it there. And um, unless Susie, you wanna add anything further, we can turn it over to questions.